scripture. Our desire is to know what God's word says so we can know what to, to do, to believe. The Bible tells us that the faithful church, which God commended them for keeping his word. And Jesus said, we are more blessed than Mary if we hear his word and do it. Having the Bible as our authority is so incredibly important. It's good to have you guys join us. Uh, this is a podcast. You can subscribe for this anywhere that you get podcasts at. You're going to get our long-form teachings. You're going to get our shorter hot topics. Then you're going to get these Q&As. Uh, just look for TruthQuest well, with Robert Furrow anywhere that you subscribe for your podcast. Uh, uh, the first question that we have today comes from uh, a uh a Q&A that we had last week. Uh, and we answered this question. It was on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and whether or not you could hurt the blessing if you didn't, or if you could hurt being blessed in your marriage if you didn't do it the right way. Uh, so I wanted to kind of cover that in its entirety. First of all, I want to talk about really marriage, divorce, and remarriage together. All of these have one question as a Christian that we should ask as we approach them. And that is, do we want to do what God wants us to do, or do we want to do what we want to do? Sometimes our short-term goals get in the way of our long-term goals. We want to get somewhere where we want to be with God, we want to walk with Him, we want to be in eternity, knowing Him, experiencing Him, having fellowship with Him, and then on the short-term goals end up getting in the way because we end up making quick decisions instead of saying, what is it that God wants for me in this particular situation? And that's the kind of way it is with marriage. We get an idea. Um, we, we ignore red flags, and then you end up getting married. And then pretty soon the question is, can I get divorced? And divorce, the Bible gives us a, 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 the reasons for divorce. One of the reasons for divorce would be adultery or sexual immorality, as Jesus said. If a man marry, divorces a wife and she marries another, she commits adultery unless it's for sexual immorality. So the divorce can come, if someone is the offended party of an affair, they can opt for a divorce. And it doesn't mean, and, and don't let anybody tell you that the offended party has to have their, their, not to harden their heart. Because the passage where Jesus said, Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of your heart, was talking to the offending parties who wanted to divorce. The, uh, the Bible also says in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, that if you do divorce, then remain single or be reconciled. And this is what a lot of people don't wanna do. Here recently, a friend of mine, long-term friend of mine, just wasn't treating his wife right. The Bible says that a husband is supposed to love his wife as Christ loves the church and dies for her. And this could solve a lot of conflict in a marriage if the man would just do his, his part. The woman has her part to do as well, but if the man would just do his part in loving his wife the way that Christ loves the church and die for her. And he just wasn't doing that. And as we talked a little bit, I could just tell he wasn't really having what I was saying. And in fact, he changed his view on what the Bible says. Shockingly, he changed his view about what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage and then divorced his wife and within a matter of a couple of months, remarried someone else. So it was kind of easy to see his wheels turning so that he changed his theology on marriage based on what he wanted to do. And so he ended up divorcing and remarrying. Now, the question that we had was, if you get married, you divorce, and then you remarried, and you don't do it the biblical way, the right way, 
do you miss out on God's blessing then? Can your marriage just not be blessed? And the answer to that is, uh, first of all, you, you, you don't want to, there are consequences and you may be living, you may find yourself living out the rest of your life dealing with some consequences, but it doesn't mean that God can't forgive you upon repentance. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I realize that when I start talking about marriage, divorce, remarriage, you end up with someone going, then I'm just going to divorce and then I'm going to repent. Yeah, but the Bible says God's not mocked. That means you think you're going to do that, but you're pre-planning to do that. And God's not going to be mocked. He's, he's not going to be manipulated by you. And so it's better for us to go now, what does God want for me right now? Am I single? Then wait for God to bring the right person. If you're, if you're married, don't seek to be unmarried. If you're single, don't seek to be married, but just wait for God to do what God's going to do with you. Bring that right person along. Or if your, your marriage is a mess, God will make it evident to you that there is a way out for you. If that is, is what's going on. Um, but I did bring up last week that God did bless David and Bathsheba's marriage, even though it was the foundations was an affair by letting her son be the next king of Israel. And if I were God, I probably wouldn't do that because I would be afraid people are going to mistake it. See, I can do things that are wrong and God's still going to bless it. But God is so merciful and wants to show us that we can do things that are wrong and God's still going to bless us. Now, there needs to be a repentance because remember, David repented and you can read Psalm 51 to read his entire repentance. He says, you don't desire sacrifice or else I would give it. There were no sacrifices for adultery and murder, both which David had committed. So he says, but you desire a broken and a contrite heart. And then he prayed that God would not take the Holy Spirit from him. And he had a real genuine repentance. And we know that because God forgave him. And if we have real genuine repentance, no matter where you're at right now, no matter what stage you're in, then God can forgive you too. But when it comes to your marriage, you want what God wants, even if it's not what you want. And I realize that that can be a bit confusing, but it is so super true. It really, it's true with every aspect of life. I don't want it if God doesn't want it for me, even if I want it. I want what God wants for me because I know long-term that's going to be, uh, that's going to be better for me. Now, what if you, uh, if, if you find yourself in a marriage or, or divorced uh, and things are not better, sometimes when you're in a marriage, it can be really tough. And then like the children of Israel, when they leave the promised land, they don't go, or they leave slavery, they don't go directly into the promised land. They wander around in the desert for a while. And sometimes we wander around in the desert for a while. And maybe that's where you feel like you are now. And there's no time to get closer to God than when you feel like you're in the midst of the desert. So the bottom line is that we want what God wants. We want to do things the way the Bible says to do them, because then we know that we're going to be blessed. All right. So um, good to see you guys uh, here at our Q&A. If you have a question, then you can write the word question or put a question mark in front of it. Uh, submit it in the comment section write it out and reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, add any references that are there, and we'll take time uh, to look at those biblical references as well, all right? So it's good to see you guys here with us today. I uh, appreciate 
uh, you guys and love our time that we have together being able uh, to look at these different uh, questions. So we have a question from Kimberly, Empress Kimberly. Good to see you, Kimberly. She says, Pastor, hi, Pastor. Who is wisdom in Proverbs 8? Jesus, the Holy Spirit, uh, personification of God's Spirit. I don't think it can be Jesus or the Holy Spirit because verses 22 through 25 implies it was created. Yeah, let's go there, Kimberly, and see <clears throat> if we can um, glean anything from the way that it's read here. I also think it personifies wisdom as a her, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, which doesn't mean that there there can't be any times where God would be spoken of as a her, but. I think that that's I think that's what we find here. So um, Proverbs, let me get there. Where am I at? All right, let me look again here. So Proverbs eight, right? Proverbs eight, and we'll just start in verse one. Uh, all right. So let me go ahead and bring that up for you. So it says, um, "Does not wisdom cry out and understanding and lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of a high hill." beside the way where path meets. She cries out the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to you, sons of men. O you simple ones, understand prudence, and you fools, be understanding of heart. Listen, for I will seek of excellent things, and from the opening of my lips will come right things. So wisdom, cries out to all people to follow the aspects of wisdom because we're going to end up doing the right things if we walk in wisdom. Verse 7, for my mouth will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. So true wisdom that is from above has nothing crooked or perverse that is in it. They are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Receive my instruction and not silver. Boy, there's a statement. Look for wisdom rather than just trying to gain money and for knowledge rather than gold. For wisdom is better than rubies and all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. I think of Solomon being asked by God, I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon asked for wisdom and God gave him everything else when he asked for wisdom. Uh, I wisdom dwell in prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength by my kings, by, by me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles all the judges of the earth. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold, and my um, revenue than choice silver. I traverse the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice, that I may cause those who love me to inherit wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, meaning that God created the world with wisdom before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting, meaning that God has always had wisdom and within God there is wisdom from the beginning before there was ever an earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth where there was no foundations abounding in the water before the mountains were settled, before the hills were brought forth. While as yet I had not made the earth nor the fields or 
the primal dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the earth, when he established the clouds above and strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the seas a limit so that the waters of the world will transgress their commandments, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. And besides, let's see, um, all right. So I guess we get the idea now. I could just go ahead and, and continue to read uh, the whole chapter there. But um, this is talking about, it's personifying wisdom. It's not talking about Jesus or the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, we should be able to find all of the things of God in wisdom, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But wisdom has been around since before the foundations of this world, and we should endeavor to walk in wisdom. We should search for wisdom more than gold and more than silver. So um, I don't think that wisdom here is trying to personify Jesus or the Holy Spirit, but I can see why people make that leap. Um, remember, Proverbs is, is um, it's wisdom literature, but it is, it's creative. And so they're finding creative ways to be able to get certain points across to us. Uh, so no, not Jesus per se, but Jesus is, is wisdom and full of wisdom, not the Holy Spirit per se, but the Holy Spirit is full of wisdom. And if we can get wisdom in our lives and always make the wise choice, then we would do really good. But remember, Solomon had all the wisdom in the world, but still gave in to sin. So wisdom isn't the 100% the answer. Wisdom in a relationship with God, knowing him and walking him is the answer. All right. So thank you, Kimberly. I appreciate that. Um, the spirit of verses 24 and 25 implies it was created. All right. Yes. And um, so, yeah. So um, Kimberly just goes on to say, um, because verses 24 and 25 implies it was created. Um, yeah, that it's always been around with God, I think, is is kind of what it's uh what it really is saying that God is is wisdom, that God is wise, and um, it's always been with him. Uh, let me read, let me go ahead and put those verses up, 22 through 25, we'll read them again. Uh, the Lord, let me get here, all right. Uh, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his ways. Before his works of old, I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning before there was ever an earth where there was no depths, I was brought forth. Yeah, so I think it's saying that in God is wisdom, and then wisdom's been around for that long. And God created everything in the world with wisdom and understanding. And when we walk in wisdom, there are blessings that come from it. But again, it's only part of the story. The other part is that we need that close relationship with God to really walk that fulfilled life, to be that person whom God wants us to be. All right, so see, uh, it's good to see you guys. If you're watching with us, uh, go ahead and say hi in the comment section. And uh, we have a question from Keeping It Real. Keeping It Real, good to see you. Keeping It Real says, so Genesis 6, it talks about the sons of God. And in John, it talks uh, that we will become sons of God when we receive him. Same meaning of sons of God. Thanks, Keeping It Real, I appreciate that. Um, and good question, by the way, no. Uh, we are the adopted sons of God, and we are heirs with Christ, who is our who is our birthright brother, so that we get adopted into the family, and we are now the sons of God, heirs with Him, and everything belongs to us. And this is both male and female. In Galatians, when it talks about us receiving the heir as a son, 
uh, it goes on to say there is no male and female, meaning that that anyone who was in the body of Christ has received all things and is an heir, a child of God, a son of God, and that you're receiving all of the heirs, even though they may be female. And in God, there is no male or female um, that's there. In, in, in the Old Testament, the sons of God was a statement about angelic beings. Um, there's a passage in, in Job that says, when I laid the, found, um, the foundations of the earth, the sons of God shouted and the morning stars sang for joy. And so laying the foundations of the earth, the sons of God were shouting. And th this is a reference to the angels. Um, there's uh, in Job chapter one, you have the sons of God making a reference there. We know that this is what first century rabbis thought it was. This was their take on it. And they were a lot closer connected to the original material that's there. Now, there are some that believe that the sons of God there represent the sons of Seth that are looking upon the daughters of Cain. Um, I just don't see anything in the scriptures about that. I see passages that talk about the sons of God wanting to dwell with the daughters of men and the Nephilim being in the land and God locking up angels that didn't keep their proper abode during the days of Noah. So um, I see it as being angels. So we are the sons of God adopted into the family of God that we see in Ephesians, um, in <clears throat> Galatians, and the sons of God are angels uh, that we see in the Old Testament. All right. So just, um, yeah, just different settings. And um, one of them being um, in the very Jewish setting and the other one being in the very Christian setting because the book of Ephesians, the book of Galatians are now Christians and Christians being Jew and Gentile alike that uh, that we find written about in the New Testament. All right. Thank you. Keeping it real. I appreciate that. Uh, Cindy, good to see you. We have a question from Cindy. Uh, and if you're new here, want to welcome you. Uh, if you have a question, just go ahead and put the word question in front of it. Write out your question. Make sure it makes sense and then bring it on. And if you have the reference, uh, we'll take a look at the reference as well. Hi, Pastor Robert. Uh, is the church of Laodicea of Revelation the same Paul was talking about in Colossians chapter three. Thanks, Cindy. I appreciate that. And it's funny that you would bring this up because I'm talking about Laodicea tonight. That's the Bible study that we have, the lukewarm church in uh, Revelation chapter three, verses 14 through 22. Uh, God says some very familiar things to them. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice, I'm going to come in and dine with them. He says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but since you are lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. He says, you think you are rich, but you are poor, wretched, poor, naked, and blind. They were in bad condition, but they thought that they were rich. Uh, so Laodicea is very close to the city of Colossae. Colossae is the, book, what, the, the city to which the book of Colossians was written to and also very close to Heropolis, which is about five miles away. I think Colossae is about three miles away from Laodicea. So Paul talks about Epaphrath being, having a heart for those in Colossae and also Laodicea. And we also know, Cindy, that there's a lost letter, right? Because in Colossians, Paul says, read the letter of the Laodiceans here and let them read your letter as well. So we have a letter that Paul wrote to the Laodiceans that we have never seen. So there are certain letters that we have 
we also know there's another uh, letter to the Corinthians that we don't have as well. So there were some letters that were written that were not preserved for us for whatever reason. God didn't see fit to preserve them. He could have, right? But yes, it is the same Laodiceans. These are very close. They are both in the Roman region of Phrygia. Phrygia is very close to Galatia. And that sounds really cold, doesn't it? I was visiting Phrygia and I went through Galatia to get there. It sounds like it's really a cold region and it is kind of a, a cooler region. But yes, it's the same, um, it's the same Laodicea. And uh, they were the lukewarm church. And we'll be talking about that tonight in our Bible study. So we have another question here from Amber Sky. Amber, good to see you. Amber says, how would you best explain free will? I see a lot of unbelievers trying to stump Christians on this question. If I'm questioned on the topic, I'd like to have the best explanation to defend my faith. So Amber, let me go ahead and th this is a big topic, right? And so let me just go ahead and try to, to cover the basics of free will as compared to determinism. Determinism is the idea that everything is predetermined. In for a, There are atheists who are determinists. They believe that our nature and who we are makes us make the decisions that we make and we can't help but make certain decisions. Kind of like if a lion, because of his nature, had a steak thrown in front of him when he was hungry, he's gonna eat that steak. So that's determinism through the atheist point of view. Uh, also, you have the Calvinists who believe in determinism. So that God actually determines through the will of man what he's going to do and not do and that God determines everything that will take place. And this leads to a lot of confusion. They'll try to say that it is, um, that it can work with free will, that men, because I wanted to do it, even though God made my will want to do it, that because I wanted to do it, I was free to do it, that it doesn't violate my free will, even though God determined everything. But you can make those statements, but it's kind of a little bit nonsensical when you start looking at it. The idea of free will in general is that you are free to make choices. And the Bible teaches us this. The Bible tells us whoever can call on the name of the Lord can be saved. The Bible says, choose you this day who will be saved. The Bible says that God commands men everywhere to repent. Would God command men everywhere to repent if some men could not repent because they were predetermined that they couldn't repent? If that's the case, to me, it looks like the Bible is setting up this whole idea of choice and you having a choice and being able to make good and bad decisions. You can walk in wisdom or not. And then all of a sudden, for God, well, God would be saying, sorry, you never had a choice. And then God's going to judge the people when they don't have free will. Now, this might not be what you're talking about at all. And you just may be looking at the sovereignty of God. So when God gets involved and says, there are certain things that God says are going to come to pass. It's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. And you have free will now to make decisions, but you're gonna be judged for your free will. And you don't have a free will to not be involved in judgment. So when, when I say I don't believe in determinism, I'm not saying I don't believe in sovereignty. Even though a Calvinist may use sovereignty and determinism in the same 
to mean the same thing. I see God's sovereignty as God does what God wants to do. And God wanted people who believe in him to be saved. And that's who God chose. That's what he's talking about in Romans chapter 9, that he had chosen for anyone who would believe in him. And the Jews that thought they were chosen couldn't argue with God if God chose to allow Gentiles to be able to be saved and come to Christ. So God gives us, I like to say, a bubble of free will. And I'm moving around in it now. I'm making choices. Hopefully I'm making good choices. I'm making wise choices. But sooner or later, I'm going to run into the edge of that bubble. And I can't go past that. That is God's sovereignty. And God can sovereignly intervene in my life whenever God wants to, as long as he hasn't limited himself by his word, God can do whatever he wants to. The only limits God has is the limits that he's given in his word and he's limited himself. It pleased the Lord to give salvation to anyone who would believe in him. And so you can freely believe in him. Now, if that's not the area you are going, the direction, Amber, that you are going with free will and wondering about it, then you can write, ask a follow-up, all right? Uh, I would like to try to be able to, to, to maybe hone in a little bit better of what you're talking about between free will and um, exactly when you get a question. It was a question from unbelievers. So, um, yeah, God gives you choices. You can make choices. And sooner or later, you're going to run into the sovereignty of God and everyone will have to answer to God. Hopefully that's helpful. All right. I feel like it might not have been as helpful as I'd hoped. All right, Amber, thank you. I appreciate that. We have a question from Sally. Sally says, what is the unforgivable sin? And should our answer be, and what should our answer be to those who think they've committed it? And disdain, um, and are destined to hell. All right. Thank you, Sally. I appreciate that. Uh, so the, uncom- the unforgivable sin was committed. We can look at who committed it. It was the scribes and the Pharisees. It was guys that that had a lot of light, a lot of information, a lot of knowledge. And then they rejected Jesus and they rejected him and they rejected him until they said that he cast out demons by Beelzebub. And then Jesus changed his teaching style so that they spoke in parables. So hearing they would hear and not believe, seeing they would see and not follow, not, not receive heaven. So he cut them off when they rejected, rejected, rejected. It seems like there is for those that have a lot of information and reject God, that there is a cutoff point that is earlier than death. So it's appointed once for a man to die and then comes judgment. So we say, okay, well, what I'm doing here now, I'm going to be judged for, but I have till I die to make it right. Well, it seems that that someone that has a lot of light and a lot of information they could move that day up so they could still be alive and God would be saying, I am no longer going to receive you. They committed the unforgivable, the unforgivable sin by rejecting the work of the spirit and the drawing of the spirit and the knowledge that everything that God had shown them. Here's the thing though, Sally, and this is what you can say to, to someone who thinks they've committed it. We never know when we commit it. How can we know? When I was a youth pastor, I had a couple of the kids come up to me with their Bibles open to Hebrews chapter six, saying, I think I committed this. It says, if you have, you know, taste of heavenly gifts and it talks about all this light and then you fall away, it's impossible to renew you to repentance. 
So I said to the kids, the couple of girls, do you want to come back? And they said, yes. I said, then you haven't committed it because it's impossible to renew you to repentance. So the person that's committed the sin doesn't want to come back. The unforgivable sin. So when you're talking to someone, they go, I think I've committed the unforgivable sin and I think I can't be forgiven. And remember, it's not saying something. It's not taking the name of the Holy Spirit in vain or cussing with the Holy Spirit. This is what the enemy wants people to believe so they can think that they can't make it into heaven. It, and so when someone says, I think I've committed the unforgivable sin and I say, well, do you want to walk with the Lord? Yes, but I think I've committed. I've done this thing and I, and I think the Holy Spirit, but do you want to walk with him? Yes, I do then you haven't committed it. And then come back to him. By repenting and following him, you're proving you haven't committed it because it says it's impossible to renew them to repentance. So then we know you haven't committed it. If you say, <clears throat> well, I think I've committed it, and I, but I don't want to come back. You know, I want to come back, but I don't want to come back. Well, then maybe you committed it. If you say to me, well, I don't want to come back. I've, I've committed the unforgivable sin. And I don't want to come back. Well, maybe you committed it. I would say, if you ever want to come back, then come back because you might be mistaken and maybe you haven't committed it. But this is something the enemy uses to try to just mess with people's heads, right? He shoots fiery darts in. He's all smoke and mirrors. And so he uses this idea uh, that you could have committed the unforgivable sin to really mess with them. But if you want to come back, then you haven't committed it. If you repent and come back to Christ, you haven't committed it. If you don't repent, then maybe you committed it. The thing is, is, if you are a very knowledgeable Christian and you've walked away from the Lord, that's who should be a little bit worried about whether or not uh, they can commit the unforgivable sin. All right, Amber? So uh, again, you're welcome to ask a follow-up. I'm sorry, right, Sally? Um, you're, you're welcome to uh, ask a follow-up question if you would like to. All right. So we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you as always. Jari says, will we see what God the Father looks like or will we only see the Son um, and know the Father? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, does each one look different? I think they do now. God is spirit and the Ancient of Days is seen on the thrones. That's the Father. Moses is able to see the air God had walked through and saw the glory. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. But since no one has seen God at any time, we, we think he saw a representation of the Lord and then said, well, am I, I am undone for I'm a man of unclean lips, which should, should happen to us when we see God. We should immediately realize that we are nowhere near whom God is and that we need to repent. That's exactly what happened to Isaiah. Uh, the, um, this is one of those questions that I don't know that we have an answer to. We know that Jesus has a body. We're going to be like him and ours is going to be glorified like him. So yes, we will see Jesus. Uh, will we see the father? Well, I think we'll, we'll see him in some way. Uh, we're going to know as we are known in the Holy spirit. And I guess, Jari, the, these are things I don't think about much because I think they're already taken care of when I get up into heaven, you know, th those things are going to be taken care of. And um, as I think about scriptures in the Bible, which talk about God, the father, as I said, you've got Daniel chapter seven, you've got the ancient of days, you've got other, um, other uh, passages. We're just getting ready 
to get into Revelation 4 and 5, which are the heavenly visions in the book of Revelation. I'm really looking forward to getting there. And so I will take this question into consideration as I enter in to my studies in those two chapters and try to answer this better for you. Something a little bit more educated. Sometimes it's hard to get things right off the top of your mind, right? Uh, some things are easier than others. Um, what God the Father, what God looks like is one of those that may be a little bit difficult uh, to come um, right off the top of your head. Um, good to see you, Vance. Um, Vance uh, Johnson is joining us. Um, and Vance played for the Broncos. Vance says, this is why I won't uh, remarry coach. I was married more than seven times and I repented after my last marriage when the, um, where, where the unbeliever didn't want me. Nine years now, I'm taking Apostle Paul's advice. It's all God. All right, good job, Vance. I appreciate it. I always appreciate your encouraging words too, by the way. Uh, so we have another question from Kay. Kay says, um, question, in, in the Bible, God says, you must be completely good because I am completely good five times in Leviticus. Why so many times? And what is it that he wants to, uh, us to know? Can we <clears throat> ever do that? All right, Kay, yes, I'm gonna be able to help you with this question, all right? Some questions I feel like, like what does God look like? Oh, I don't, I don't know. But hey, um, that if we're to be completely good, um, I can answer this one. Why? Because Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And when I was a teenager and I went to the Assembly of God Church that I went to was part of the holiness movement, they taught that it was possible to be perfect. And they, they used that verse, be perfect your, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I really thought I could be perfect. I really wanted to be because we were taught that that's where the power of God resides, in righteousness. You walk right with Him and then there can be righteousness. And I misunderstood that passage. So what does it mean when Jesus says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect? And the same thing that it means in the book of, uh, what is it, is Leviticus. It's telling us God's standard is perfection and you have to be perfect or you can't know him. You can't have a relationship with him. And so you might feel like, well, that leaves me out. What, what can I do then because I'm not perfect? Neither can I be perfect. The Bible says in John, 1 John chapter 1, if anyone says they don't sin, they're a liar. And the truth ain't in you. If you say, I don't sin, you sin in ways you don't know. When I was part of the holiness movement, I would think that I would be pretty good. I, I, could, I think I would go a couple of weeks without sin. I haven't sinned for a couple of weeks. I, I was sinning and didn't even know it. There were ways I was sinning that I didn't even have clues that I was sinning by. So what does Jesus mean when he says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect? What was the purpose of the law? Saying, be perfect. And if you do these things, you will be greatly blessed. It was telling us that that's what God's standards are and that we fall short of them. The law was given to show us like a mirror that we have sin, that I can't be good. Okay, you probably feel like me. You wanna be good, but you find you, you're not good. And so what did Jesus mean when he said, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect? He didn't say there how to achieve that perfection. When um, I started listening with to Pastor Chuck Smith's um, cassette tapes, I was still in high school and I, I heard a teaching he did on grace. And this is while I was attending the Holiness Movement Church. 
and he talked about God's grace, like a, like God lifting you up and doing everything for you. He talked about God making you perfect at the moment that you are born again, and the moment that you say, Lord, forgive me of my sins, that we are now positionally perfect before God. And I, it dawned on me, even in high school, that I'd been trying to climb the cliffs of insanity, Princess Bride reference, and make it up to holiness, which is insanity to try to do in your own flesh, and the, because the, the things of God can never be done by the power of the flesh, not by might nor by power, it says in Zechariah, but by my spirit. And this whole time I'm trying to climb up to this level of holiness and get there and failing, there's a helicopter ride that is the grace of God, which as soon as I say, Lord, forgive me and come into my life, I am in a way, this will blow your mind, okay? We, you are in a way seated in the heavenlies with God. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that you are seated in the heavenlies with God. And you say, well, I'm here right now. Yeah, but there's a way in which you are and you will be. You are seated with him now and you will be. And we have righteousness now, even though we don't have it. Even though on a practical basis of walking daily, I need the forgiveness of God. I need the grace of God in my life. That's not encouraging a license to sin. We want to give God holiness and purity. We want to be sanctified. We want the inner man to be renewed day by day, even while the outer man is perishing. But when Jesus says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, it ought to cause you to go, well, then how can I do that? Because I can't do it on my own because I have the sin nature inside of me and I blow it. So I'm only perfect by the blood of Christ, only by receiving him. So the law was a mirror to show you that you have sin. Let me give you an example of that. Um, Ray Comfort is Calvary Chapel pastor. He's got a ministry called Living Waters. He travels around, he interviews people, and he's got a really unique style. He'll start talking to them and he'll say, hey, can I ask you a few questions? Um, have you ever stolen anything? And they'll say, yeah, I stole something. And then he'll say, have you ever, um, have you ever lied? They'll say, yeah, I've lied. And then they'll say, the Bible says that if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart after her. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? And most of the time they'll say, yeah, both male and female. I was watching one of them and the guy was there with his wife and Ray Comfort asked him, have you ever looked at a woman with lust? And he looked at his wife really quick and he said, no. <laughs> and then he goes, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and, and then Ray Comfort will say, well, then you are a lying, thieving, blasphemer. One of the questions he asks, if you ever take God's name in vain, uh, adulterer at heart. So what, he's, what he does is he uses the Ten Commandments are part of them to reveal to people that you've fallen short of the glory of God. And so then he says, heaven or hell? And oftentimes they'll say hell. And he'll say, that's why Jesus came. And he'll give him the gospel. Jesus came to die in your place. And if you receive him and, and that your life will be transformed and you will be changed, and he gives them the gospel and he uses the law to show them their need. Okay, that's what the law is for. That's why when you're reading in Numbers, it says, be perfect, be perfect, be perfect, be perfect. And you're struck with the fact that you're not perfect. That's what the law is for. Leviticus is doing its job. It is revealing to you that you are not perfect and that you need Jesus Christ. We are no longer under the law, praise God. But in the New Testament, Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So we have to have 
that perfectness that comes by the blood of Jesus Christ into each one of our lives. All right. Okay. Thank you very much for your question. Um, feel free for a follow-up if you would like to. Uh, Shelly says, so you get divorced because your spouse committed adultery. Then what you're saying is you cannot marry again. Anyone else? No. If you get divorced because your, your partner committed adultery, you are free to remarry again. If you divorce because you're miserable and you just say, I'm just going to divorce because I, I can't live this way anymore, then you are to remain unmarried or to be reconciled. So that's the decision you're making. And this is why it's so important for you to do what I said earlier, Shelly, which is to say, what does God want from me? And if I'm married as a man, am I dying for, am, am I loving my wife the way that Christ loves the church and dying for her? And, and as a wife, are you being, are, are, are you being that help to your husband? Are you submitting to him? And, and the word doesn't mean what people think it means or how people have misused the word, but there are different roles in marriage. The Bible says that women should respect their husbands. And that's something men need is respect. And if you don't respect your husband, if when he was younger, he was frivolous with money and you don't allow him to have the checkbook because he's not responsible, I, I would say, give him the checkbook. Let him know, I trust you. I respect you. There's something about that. Just like women need to be loved. And I'm saying men don't need to be loved, but women need to know that their husbands love them. So you make a decision to say, even though I don't like my present circumstances, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. If I'm single, it means I'm going to serve God while I'm single. And if God brings me someone to marry, I want to be the person God wants, that God wants for me, that God's bringing me. And if I'm married, I'm going to be, even though it might be a difficult circumstance in that marriage, for whatever reason, I mean, somebody could have gotten sick after you got married, right? And, and now your whole life is not what you planned on doing, but you stay faithful in that marriage because you know that's what God wants you to do. And plus that's what real love and commitment is meant for you to do. And, and so then if you, if there is a divorce, if it's to a non-believer, then, and the non-believer wants to leave, then you're free to remarry. If you can't just willy-nilly divorce a non-believer though, because you're trying to win him to the Lord. And then if you do end up divorcing, then you remain single. If there was no sexual morality, remain single or be reconciled. And this might take place if there's abuse, if there is um, some addiction happening, if the, the home is not a safe place, and so you take the kids and you leave, but you're not leaving to remarry another, you're leaving to say, look, if you ever get it together, we, we can reconcile, but I'll remain unmarried, but I will not stay in this situation. The same is true with physical abuse. Get out of there. You're not at this point saying, I'm gonna go marry somebody else. You're saying, look, I'd rather remain unmarried for the rest of my life than to stay in a marriage with you while you're abusing me which is a pretty strong statement to them. Now, the question would be asked, when they remarry, does that allow you to remarry? The answer to that would be when they remarry, when they have a sexual relationship with someone else, then the marriage vow is broken and you could remarry. And here's where I talk about not manipulating God, because some women might go, I know if I leave my husband, then it won't be long until he has sex with someone. 
and I'm going to be able to, to marry somebody else. And that may be true, but that should not be your motivation. All right. And um, I find that most, most Christians, and this is really sad. This is a sad commentary. I have found that most Christians do not trust God with their marriage, their divorce, and their remarriage. That when it comes to that, they're doing what they want to do. No wonder there's so much difficulty within marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I'm not saying that God can't bless you right where you are today, because if you, you no matter what you've been through before, you've been, been married seven times, and you say, Lord, I'm just going to remain single now. I'm just going to serve you, like Vance told us. Then God can bless that. You know, you haven't taken away any blessings from God. The moment, and if you're married, you're seven times you've been married, you're married now, stay married. And, and God can bless that marriage because God's able to bless in the midst of those kind of things. All right. So um, hopefully that really clears it up. So the, the, the answer, I'll put this question back up here because I want people to really get it. So if you get divorced because your spouse committed adultery, then what you're saying is you cannot marry again. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the opposite. If you get divorced because someone has committed sexual immorality of adultery, then you can divorce them and remarry another. All right, but take your time, okay? Don't go out and remarry right away. But no, basically what happened is, is the offending person broke the marriage vows. And so God allows you to walk away from it. You're not breaking it. And that's why when people say, you know, divorce is a violent thing. And when you're divorcing your husband, you're causing the violence. No, the violence is already done. Because for this reason, a man and a wife shall leave their father and mother. The two shall cleave together and become one flesh. That's what God desires and wants. And then it was broken with the adultery. It could be put back together again if you chose that. You could make, there could be repentance, there could be recommitment, and the marriage could be a marriage again. But if you choose then to leave that person because you can't handle it, then the, the marriage is already broken. And so you are free to remarry. All right. And I, I will answer any questions you guys have specifically about situations. Um, and you can always say, a friend of mine says this because it's so complicated that there's no way that I could hit all of the spots unless I went, and I've done this before, done a, a, a teaching on marriage, divorce, remarriage, and the Christian, and gone, gone over all the different scenarios um, that we that you could go over. So we have a follow-up um, from last week from Jari. Good to see you again, Jari. Jari says, um, from last week, if the Lord tarries, how do we know there will be a revival regarding birth pains? I heard another Calvary Chapel, nameless, teach it, uh, will only get worse when we have to endure. So Jari, I do think that overall that's right, that things are going to get crazier and crazier and crazier and worse and worse until we come to the, the very last days, which is the tribulation period, which is even worse. But that that's like a trend. That doesn't mean that things couldn't get better for a while before they get worse again. It's kind of like looking at the stock market. The basic trend of the stock market is up, <laughs> but for the last few months, it's been down. But over the long haul, it's up. Now, again, maybe it's not gonna keep going up, but I'm just saying, if you look back at the last, since 1950, the, the stock market has been going up. Even though it comes back down, it's been going up. So things are getting worse, but there may be times of peace that fit in there. So you can't say, it's only going to get worse without getting better at all. God might intervene and have a time of revival, which I'm praying for. 
that things wouldn't get worse, but would be okay for a while. That's what I'm hoping for. All right. Thank you, Jari. I appreciate that. And um, so Shelly says, when you lack faith, is that sin? Yeah, uh, because faith is, faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when God's word says something and you do it, that's faith. By faith, the children of Israel kept the Passover. God told them how to kill the lamb, smear the blood on the doorpost so the death angel would pass over. They, by faith, kept it because they did it. They trusted God and they did it. So when God tells us to do something and we do it, that's faith. When we don't do it, that's the lack of faith. And when we don't have faith, it is sin. And faith can move mountains. And faith is the way that we gain forgiveness. So yeah, we um, we want to be obedient to God's word, which is faith. All right, Shelly, thank you very much. I appreciate that. We have a question from Daru, and I hope I'm saying your name right. If I'm not butchering it. If I am, I'm sorry. All right. Um, so Daru says, hello, Pastor Robert. Unfortunately, I went through a divorce of 24 years. Uh, I thought of when I die one day, it would make it into heaven because of the situation. I'm going to think of the divorce. Um, Daru, no matter what you've done, if you ask God to forgive you now, you can be forgiven. And I don't know what your situation you're going to go on talking about, what you're running into is that YouTube only allows you to put so many words in your question. If you go from Facebook, you can write as many as you want. We can have a book up there. Um, but God's not going to keep you out of heaven because you divorced. I'm not saying God wants you to divorce. I'm just saying that's not what keeps you out of heaven. What keeps you out of heaven is not knowing Jesus. So in John 3, 16, Jesus said, and you know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Then he says, the son of man did not come into the world to condemn it, but you are condemned already. So you are already condemned, but if you repent, then you can be forgiven. And the only sin that will not be forgiven is the sin you will not confess. If you confess it and repent, then you will be forgiven, no matter what that sin is in the past. So don't let the enemy try to make you think that something as heavy as divorcing, which it is heavy, it's a heavy subject, it shouldn't be talked about lightly. There, you, there should be a lot of counsel when you're when you're looking at it, but don't let that think that that's gonna keep you out of heaven, Daru, because it's not. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient enough to bring you into heaven, all right? And again, I'll take, I'll take more questions on that if we need to clear that up even more, all right? So we have a question from Rhonda. Rhonda, good to see you, good to have you here. She says, hi, Pastor, my question is, when a man marries a woman who is not the mother of his child, can you direct me through scripture for the place of the child? All right, so let me see if I'm, I'm understanding what your question is. So you're saying a man's a stepfather of that child. When he gets, when, when he gets married, he's not the kid's stepfather. What is the place of that child through scripture? Um, I, let me just think for a moment here. Let me work through my process out loud. I think of Joseph being the stepfather of Jesus and Jesus being a carpenter. I, we assume Joseph was a carpenter. Um, 
and he cared for his physical needs while he was there. I think that we are, God's adopted a lot of kids. When we marry someone, they're, they're, we become their step-parent. When we adopt them, they, be, they become legally our children. They could take your last name. I think there's some precedent for them legally being your children. Um, I don't know that there is a passage. I, we might be able to go to the Leverite laws in the Old Testament, the laws of brothers when one dies and responsibility of another brother. But I don't know that I could go right to a scripture. Um, Rhonda, I'm sorry. Maybe if you can give me a little bit more direction, I might be able to help. But I don't know of a broad statement about the place of a child other than for, for a stepdad or a stepmom. All right. And right, Daru talks about, you know, I looked up the situation of King David and God forgave him. Yeah, if God forgave him, then God could forgive anyone, right? But David loved God. David made a huge mistake, a sinful mistake, and God forgave him and God can forgive us. And uh, so Vance says, uh, hello, uh, Pat, uh, Robert Furrow, uh, our coach, Robert, Coach Robert Furrow, uh, you can call the right play from the playbook, the Bible. Amen. I think that's the right thing, Vance. Appreciate that. All right, we have another question from Kay. Kay says, Pastor, what does one do who has divorced? Is one sin no different than another? It's the fact that God's law has been broken, so it's called sin. Um, okay, so let's just talk about sin for a moment, Kay. And then we'll come back to your question. Sin is sin because there's something inherent in it that makes it sin or that makes it wrong. Think about bearing false witness. Why, why is bearing false witness a sin? Just because God decided, you know, I don't want people bearing false witness. So I'm going to say, don't bear false witness. So now that I've said, don't bear false witness, it's a sin. No, you're slandering someone. And when you slander someone, when you bear false witness, say a person did something they never do and misrepresent them, that's evil in itself. So sin is sin because there's something inherent in it that makes it sin. When you steal from somebody, you're taking something that is there. And in, in that, there's the right of property. But I steal it and I'm doing something wrong. Coveting is something wrong. I'm coveting what someone else has. And inherent in it is sin. Okay? So sin is sin because something inherent in it is a sin. The one, the one outlier here would be transgression. So if there's a sign that says, no trespassing, but there's nothing inherently wrong with me walking on land. So if I walk by that sign and I walk onto that land, I'm now trespassing. It's not because I'm walking on the land. It's because of my rebellion in looking at that sign that it has become a trespass to me now. We have a rule in our sanctuary that you can't bring drinks other than water into our sanctuary because we want our carpet to stay nice. And there's been too many big coffee stains that are there but people hide their coffee and they bring it in. They're trespassing. Nothing inherently wrong with bringing coffee into the, into the sanctuary. And probably there's no problem because most people don't spill it. But when you do spill it, then we go, that's why we have the rule. Because we don't want to have to put new carpet in because the carpet looks absolutely filthy because people have been spilling coffee all over it. So um, now with that in mind about what sin is, it's inher something inherent in sin makes it sin that God just didn't come up with something to be sin. Every sin has something inherent in it that's that's wrong. 
So hi, pastor, what does one do who has divorced? Isn't one sin no different than another? The answer to that is sins are radically different than another. If I steal a Cheeto from the person I'm eating lunch with, and they didn't want me to, and they get really get mad. They really should get me, leave them alone, they're mine. I'm sorry, I was just wanting one of your Cheetos. That's a sin, but it would not be the same as murdering them. If I murder them, I'm robbing their life, someone who's made the image of God. So one sin is not different. Now, can stealing a Cheeto, if I don't repent from that, keep me out of heaven? Well, yes, but it's, it's the fact that I'm a sinner who hasn't received Jesus that keeps me out of heaven. But, but not all sins are the same. And when pastors say that, they need to really spend time to clarify what they mean. When it comes to what will keep you out of heaven or, the, or reveal your sin nature, all sins are the same. But not all sins are the same. Neither will they be dealt with by God all the same. And so then, then you say, is that the fact that God's law has been broken and so it's called sin? And the answer to that is no. Yes, when God gives a law and it's broken, it's sin. But, but inherent within the action that is sinful is something that is sinful and deceptive and destructive and brings death. And that's why we don't want that in our lives. Very good question, okay? And something that a lot of Christians don't understand, the nature of sin. And that's why I say whenever I teach on sin, you don't want it. You might want it, but you don't want it because you don't want everything that's going to come from that sin. If you could now, through the rest of your life, not sin, that's what you want. You want the blessings that come from it. You don't want the results and the baggage that comes from the things that are inherently wrong within sin that cause deception and destruction and death within your life. You don't want it. Even though you might want that particular sin, you don't want sin. That's a hard thing for us to really grasp and to hang on to. Uh, so uh, Daru says, follow up uh, this situation uh, of my divorce always brings condemnation in my mind. Yeah. Um, I understand that, Daru. Uh, the, uh, I haven't been divorced, but Paul said in Romans chapter seven, the end of the chapter, oh, wretched man that I am who could deliver me from this body of death. Praise be to God, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that even though I might condemn myself, he has forgiven me, even if, if we condemn ourselves. There is forgiveness that is in Christ. And so you've got to somehow walk in his forgiveness. There might always be some regret, Daru. I don't know the circumstances. It's not saying all regret will be taken away, but not condemnation. God will not condemn you. That's to condemn you. That's to, to condemn you to hell. There is no condemnation. There may be conviction. There may be, you know what? If I could do it again, I wouldn't do it that way. That's different. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, and so Albert's talking um, about Vance. I said that Vance had played for the Broncos. He also played for U of A, uh, uh, football for, for U of A. And uh, they're talking about a U of A USC game that someone had seen him play in um, years ago. All right, uh, so let's see. Um, Albert has a question. I think this is gonna be our last one, 459. Let's see if I can answer this in a minute. Um, if you, in a, in your spiritual walk, pastor, 
What have you found to be the most practical and effective way to consistently walk in the spirit? Thank you, Pastor. Yeah, what a great question. Um, and I, I, I want to by no way, in no way, pretend that I am always walking in the spirit, that I never get in the flesh, and that I'm always really spiritual. So I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to go there at all. But I think the way you walk in the spirit is that the word of God has been inspired by the spirit of God. And you keep the, the word of God. You want to walk in the spirit. So when the Bible says, love your enemy, do good to those who curse you, or yeah, do good to those who curse you, um, or do good to those, those who do evil to you, then you do those things and you're walking in the spirit and keeping your your life right, keeping a short account with your sins so there's nothing in between you and God, and then being evident that you want to do the things the Holy Spirit is leading you to do. And you can find yourself walking in the spirit. And this is such an important question because the Bible says, if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's an amazing promise. And a way that we should battle the flesh is to walk in the spirit, which I've often said, I love that it doesn't say battle the flesh and you won't walk in it. Because a lot of times we're like fighting the flesh. But instead walk in the spirit. How can I walk in the spirit the rest of today? That makes it a whole lot easier. I'm going to walk in the spirit between now and the time I go to church. I'm going to walk in the spirit when I'm teaching at church tonight. I'm going to walk in the spirit when I come home tonight. I'm walking. The, I'm going to walk in the spirit when I go to bed, and then when I get up in the morning. And tomorrow, I want to walk in the spirit more than I walked in the spirit today. And you can use other passages for that as well. Delighting yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. So on. Um, how do you delight in the Lord daily? Th those kind of things all come into the same same play. But those. This is this is the right question to be asking for all of us. This is the right desire for us to say. How can I walk in the spirit daily? And how can I be more effective in doing that? And I say it is by making things right with God and then doing the things the Bible tells you to do. Keeping the word of God. That's how God commended the church of Philadelphia because they, they were the faithful church that kept the word of God. So Lord, I wanna keep your word. And I'm not talking about in a legalistic sense. I'm just talking about in my daily life. How can I be pleasing God in everything that I'm doing, following the instruction that I find in the word of God and not being rebellious against it? And I believe that that is the way that we walk in the spirit. All right. Thank you, Albert. I appreciate that. Uh, I think there are some other questions that are down here. Maybe we answered them all. I don't think so. Um, so... Uh, it's good to see you guys. I will take a look at this later on. I see a question from Matt, um, and we'll take a look at these questions. I'll look for something to start our next um, Q&A with, uh, but it's going to be good being here with you guys. God bless you. Stay close to Jesus. We have a service in an hour. Uh, it is, we're going to have a time of worship and fellowship, and then we're in the book of Revelation. We'll be covering verses 14 through 22. We'll be talking about the lukewarm church, the church of Laodicea tonight and look forward to seeing you there. And then this weekend, we're going to be talking about the rest of Pontius Pilate's trial. All right. So God bless you. Uh, stay close to Jesus. All right. Walk in the spirit the rest of the day and tomorrow, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. God bless you guys. Love you. We'll see you later on.